You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, go to sojournmontrose.com. Um, we are in the middle of a sermon series, walking through the book of Romans, really, um, at just a, a leisurely pace. Um, and today's sermon is entitled Righteousness by Faith. And it follows one really sort of grand section that revealed to us our unrighteousness, God's righteousness, And the fact that in order for us to be justified, we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so today what we want to look at is how do we lay hold of that that righteousness, that justification. When we begin to understand that our salvation is not something that we can obtain or acquire or merit for ourselves, the question then becomes, well, well, how do we obtain it? Um, And so chapter 4 is really really all about that. And... um, He's going to use one main example in the life of Abraham, but what we will see um, is that although all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we talked about last week, um, they can be justified, one can be justified freely by the gift of Jesus Christ, who through his blood is the propitiation for our sin. He is the one that satisfies the wrath of God towards sin and death in us. And so uh, the way we normally do it, we've got uh, three points as usual, um, and we'll just kind of talk through those. And so the first one, if you're taking notes, is called dues um, versus gifts. And we're just going to start off in verse four. We It's a long chapter. Sorry, Gavin. Didn't mean to do that to you. Um, actually, I did. But um, <laughs> uh you just happen to draw that straw. Um, <laughs> but uh, So I'm just going to kind of pick um, some piecemeal there, but I'll try to explain all the pieces in between as well so that we get a good comprehensive understanding of what chapter 4 in Romans is all about. And so um, just read verse 4 with me. It says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And so here's, here's what I want us to understand. And Paul is going to continue to uh, sort of further this argument that there is, there is nothing in and of ourselves that we can accomplish, that we can do to gain the, the favor of God. And he's going to use this idea of work as an example for that. And so just you, it's really easy to relate this to any normal life. If you go to a job right now, um, which I, most of us hopefully are blessed to have one of those, um, you're not surprised when you receive your paycheck, right? You're, you're not like, oh, well, this is nice. I'm glad that my employer decided to pay me this week. You're like, yeah, no, I, like, I worked hard for that. 40 hours worth or maybe 50, depending on how many TPS reports you had to fill out, which if you've watched Office Space, that's funnier than, than that landed, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Um, but you earned that wage. You, it was given to you based upon your work, based upon your contribution, based upon what a service that you have provided. You were justly and rightly given recompense for your time. But here's the thing. What the Bible doesn't tell us and what Romans does not tell us in chapter 3, it doesn't say that you earn your justification. What does it say? Chapter 3, verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of Christ Jesus. And so here's the thing. What's so funny about all of this is that although that is explicitly and and completely true and stated right there, the the way that we behave, the way that we act often reflects that we believe in a works-based salvation. We believe that we can put God into our debt. But what Romans 4 verse 5 says is this, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
So what is, what is Paul saying? He's saying you can't, you can't earn righteousness. You can't bring that upon yourself. There's nothing that you can do. There's no account that you can sort of build up where the, where the Lord will say, okay, you've, you've earned it. You've achieved it. You're there. It's just impossible. It's a gift. And so here's the thing. Let's put ourselves in another situation. Let's just imagine that somebody slipped you a check for $5 million. Arbitrary number. I don't know. It sounds like a good number, though. Five, $5 million. Here's what you wouldn't say. Oh, finally. Finally, somebody recognized my hard work. I, I, you know, I, I deserve this. I am worthy of this. I've done the work that, that merits a paycheck of this, of this magnitude or a check, a gift of this magnitude. You wouldn't do that. First, you'd probably slap yourself. Then, you'd probably slap the person that was trying to give you the check because you wouldn't believe it was real. You would marvel at it. You would hardly believe it. You would say, man, what, what a gift. I didn't earn that. Somebody just decided to plop that in my hand. Here's the thing. Oftentimes, we tend to look at salvation. We tend to look at, really, uh, we, we, we've used this phrase all throughout this series. Oftentimes, Christianity, following Jesus, is known more for its morality than for its message. And, and the thing is, it's the, the message that tells us our morality is incapable, unable of fulfilling all the things that God would have us to fulfill. In fact, if salvation is not a gift, then God is obligated, he's obliged to save us, just as your employer is obliged to pay you for your work. And that runs against everything that the Bible says, everything that the Bible says. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to use the example of David. He, he actually quotes from Psalm chapter 32 and verses 7 and 8. And if you don't know who King David is, he's pretty highly revered in, in Jewish culture, the, the nation of Israel. He's one of their greatest kings under whom the nation of Israel prospered. Um, he defeated the Philistines. He was known as a, as a mighty warrior. I mean, he's, he's got kind of a good resume by all, by all standards that you could kind of measure yourself by. And yet, what is it that, that King David is going to say in verse 7? He says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. See, here's the thing. If anybody had a reason to kind of be like, I'm doing all right for myself, David would have been one of those guys. And yet, we find out that he's an adulterer, he's a murderer by conspiracy, and he's a liar. And he knows, he knows that his only hope is to trust in the Lord's forgiveness. What does he say? He says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So where does David's faith lie? Where does David's righteousness come from? It's not, I've done all these mighty things. I am, I am revered. I'm well respected. I'm a king. It's the Lord has looked upon me and chosen not to count against me my sin. That's where David's faith is, is placed in. That's where his faith rests. That's where his righteousness comes from. And so here's the thing. The difference uh, between a works-based salvation and actually following Jesus is understanding that what Jesus provides is a gift, not a do. Does that make sense? So you can't, there's, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can earn in, in it, laying hold of that righteousness. It's a gift. 
It's a sheer gift of the goodness and the graciousness of God himself. So the second point is this, belief in God versus believing God. And we're going to read um, verse 3 in Romans chapter 4. I told you we would jump around a little bit. It says this, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Abraham believed there was a God. It didn't say Abraham believed in God, but he didn't really believe what he said. Didn't really believe that he, he does what he says he'll do. That he is as great and as mighty and majestic as he says he is. No, it says he believed God. He didn't just believe that there was a God, but he believed that what God said was real, was truth, defined reality for him. So here's the thing, just to, as a quick example. Do you believe that that right there is a chair? Everyone's confused by that question? or Is it a chair? It's a chair. Okay, good. We're, we're on the same page there. Do you believe that if you sat in that chair, it would hold you up? It's not a trick question. Okay, cool. Awesome. Is it holding you up right now? Well, no, not that one in particular, right? Because you're not sitting in it, right? But we believe that that is a chair, and we believe that that chair will hold us up if we were to sit in it, but we're not currently sitting in it. Here's the thing. We can believe that there is a God. We can believe um, even that, that in this God, we can believe that that God exists and that that God has the power to save us and that that God is a good and gracious God. And yet, if we don't put our faith in him, if we don't trust him, if we don't sit on that truth, then it's, it's not enough. We're not really believing God. We're saying, yeah, I think that's true. I'm, I'm halfway there, maybe. But we're not placing our trust in what God has done and, and in the person and work of Jesus. You can assent to a truth without believing in a truth, without, without that truth spurring you to action. And so here's the thing. Righteousness by faith precedes works. And he's going to use this example um, of, of circumcision, which that was probably weird for you. You're like, I haven't heard that word that many times in the same sentence in a long time Amen. or ever, right? Um, so everyone's kind of like, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, a weird church. Um, but, no, but, um, but, but circumcision, very simply, it was, it was an outward sign. It was a sign of the covenant, right? And, and Paul kind of explains that in here. But essentially, God makes a promise, makes a covenant to Abraham. He says, you're going to be the father of a great nation, of many people, and a sign of this covenant, a sign of this promise will be circumcision. But here's the thing. Paul uses this example to show us really the order in which works happen, right? So it says this in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, 
but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So here's the thing. The Jews at this point had gotten into a relationship with God in which it was ritual, in which it was, if I do these things, that merits righteousness, that merits God's favor. That's what chapter two is all about. And really the beginning of chapter three, it's all about how the Jews were placing their faith in this expression, in this symbol, in this sign of the covenant, and not in the covenant itself, not in the covenant giver, not in the covenant maker. And so Paul uses the example of Abraham's circumcision to show us that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, and then he was circumcised. So faith always precedes works, always If you really want to live a changed life by the gospel, have faith that God is who he says he is. Have faith that he has done what he says he's done. That will lead you to change your life. If you really believe that. Here's the thing. If somebody were to, like I said, if we put you back in that situation where somebody slips you a check for $5 million, if you don't believe that's a check, you're not going to go cash it. You're not going to start living differently. You're still going to worry about your bank account. You're still going to you're still going to act as though nothing ever happened. But if you really believe that that's a 5 million dollar check and you actually go and cash it, that's going to change the way you live. Probably for the worse in this case scenario, but when you follow Jesus, that's not the case. It leads to life, life abundant, the way, the truth, the life. So here's the thing. Circumcision was merely a sign. Baptism is merely a sign. Church attendance is merely a sign. It's what happens in our hearts. It's righteousness that is applied by faith, which is given as a gift. The ability to believe, to take hold of the promise that God has given to us in Jesus. So here's the thing. Righteousness is by grace alone, through faith alone. So it's a gift, and it's through faith. But this does not exclude works, rather it leads to them, right? So here's what Abraham didn't do. He didn't say, okay, God, you've counted my faith to me as righteousness. Whole circumcision thing sounds not fun, right? Sounds really bad, actually. And so I'm just going to forego that, and I'll just take the, the faith and the righteousness part, and I'll leave that thing for maybe some never, right? He didn't do that. No, he walked through that because it was a sign of something that had happened inside of him. It was something um, that proceeded really from something that God had done in him in providing that faith. And so it doesn't exclude works. And and we see that even at the end of the the chapter from last week where it says in Romans 3.31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And Paul's going to get into that a lot more in the next uh, two or three chapters. So I'll hold off on that. We'll address that in the next couple of weeks. But faith alone does not exclude works. Rather, it leads us to them. So the third and final point, we really want to look at Abraham's life as a case study of faith. And, and verse 22 of this chapter says that, uh, that this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And so what I want us to do for a moment is just take, take a moment and examine what is it? What is the reason that his faith was credited to him as righteousness? 
And there's three things. There's three things that he did. The first one is, uh, and these would be good to write down if you're taking notes. The first thing that he did was he understood that reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear. Now, let me explain that a little bit by reading from the Bible. Um, Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says this. It's, It's talking about Abraham, and it says this. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. So here's the thing. God had promised Abraham, and this is in, in Genesis, he had promised to Abraham many descendants, and yet he had none. So imagine being 100 years old and God telling you, hey, you're going to have a ton of children. What? That's not even possible. Not only was Abraham really, really old, but his wife was barren. She was infertile. They'd been together for 100 years. No kids yet. There's probably an issue, right? But here's the thing. Faith, faith is not opposed to reason, but it is sometimes opposed to feelings and to appearances. So although the temptation is to look at our circumstances or to look at the way things are and say, that's impossible, or I don't feel that, thus it cannot be true, is actually unreasonable. That there is reason in, in, in believing what it is the Lord has said he will do. This shows us that, that faith is not simply an optimism about life in general, nor is it faith in oneself. It is, in fact, the opposite. So rather than saying it's my emotions that are the truth, we say that's the truth and my emotions aren't lining up with that right at this moment. And that's okay. But the truth is permanent. The truth is constant. The truth doesn't waver. What did did Romans chapter 3 tell us? It says that even though we're unfaithful, God is faithful. Even though we are liars, God is true. And so everything that he says is reliable. Faith begins with a kind of death to self-trust. Faith is going on something despite our weaknesses, despite our feelings, despite our perceptions. And here's the problem with that. So much of church culture has been built around emotion when it should be built around truth. You come in on a Sunday and you say, I don't feel like worshiping God. I don't have that in me right now. It doesn't matter. The truth is is that God is marvelous. God is wonderful. And you may not feel that right now, but it's true. And so I'm going to hold on to that. That's what faith is. I'm going to believe that in spite of my feelings. I'm going to believe that in spite of the fact that my circumstances would dictate that maybe God isn't good to me. But here's the thing. We know in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And so even though we might be enduring suffering, even though our circumstances, our emotions might be all over the place, God's truth doesn't change. Following Jesus will at some point cause you to operate in spite of your feelings. There are moments that I personally, me, like the pastor, don't feel God. There are moments where I don't feel righteous. There are moments where I don't feel like God really loves me. There are moments where I don't feel like being in community. But faith is believing that he is God, that I am loved, and that he does 
care for me in spite of my unrighteousness. That's faith. And that's what, that's what Abraham does. He looks at his old, decrepit body. He looks at his barren wife and he says, God said it was going to happen. So I guess it's going to happen. And guys, there's a, there's a long period of time between that promise and, bet and between when it actually is realized in the birth of Isaac. So that was the first thing he did. He, he did. He understood that reality is greater than how we feel or how things appear, meaning that the Bible, what the Bible says about God, who God is, is the ultimate reality. Does that make sense? A lot of times we try to define reality by a whole bunch of other things, our emotions, our feelings, our circumstances, and yet what Abraham understands is that above and beyond and in and through all of those things stands a sovereign, good, and gracious God who lives up to, who makes good on his promises. The second thing that Abraham did was that he focused on facts about God. Um, uh, verse 20 says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God. So despite the apparent impossibility of the promises that God gave Abraham, Abraham gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able. That sounds a little bit different than come when you feel like it. That sounds a little bit different from God, I don't feel like you're there, so you must not be real. That's saying, God, I don't feel that, but I know you're there. I know that you're true. I know that you're good. I know that you have made a promise. I know that you're just. You're faithful and just to forgive. You're faithful and just to cleanse of all unrighteousness. So this shows us that the faith, that faith is not the absence of thinking, sort of like transcending to some different space where you're apart from your thoughts. But rather, it's a profound insistence on acting out of measured reflection instead of just reacting to circumstances. Right? This is why the Bible tells us that deacons are supposed to be sober-minded. They don't look at situations and just lose their mind, freak out, because they know that, that, that God is in control, that God is sovereign. See, Abraham pondered and considered the power of God. He believed that the God who had promised him a child was, as, as verse 17 says, the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. He believed that to be true. And so his line of thinking probably went like this. Sarah and I are both old. She's barren. But God is the one who hung the sun and the moon and scattered the stars. And so it is ridiculous for me to think that my age could present an obstacle to God actually fulfilling his promise. What a presumption we make on our own power. As if we could thwart the will of God. We can't. He is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. That's where Abraham's faith went. Faith is thinking about God, focusing on facts about him. Facts about God will overrule the tempest of our emotions. He is trustworthy. He is faithworthy. And he has proven it time and time again. That's what the Old Testament is all about, by the way. Is that God is faithful in spite of the faithlessness of his people. 
that God still says, I am going to save you, dang it. It's going to happen. I'm going to provide this. I will have my people. I will have my fame, my name known as it truly should be. Right? That's what Isaiah promises. He's prophesying. And he says, he says what? The Lord says that I will act for the sake of my name because you have profaned it. And then the third thing that he did was this. He trusted the bare word of God, the sheer word of God. Romans 4.21 reads like this. Um, Well, let's just take 22. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what? To do what he had promised. Abraham believed that God was able to do what he has promised. Believing God is not simply thinking about God, um, but it's trusting his word. Indeed, it is taking God as his word even when there is nothing else to go on. When feelings, when popular opinion, when common sense seem to contradict his promise, we look to that and say, I still think this is true. It is to look at what God has said and let that define your reality. That's what faith is all about. That's what what led to God counting his faith to him as righteousness. But here's the thing, and this is kind of our our concluding thought. Abraham's faith also, also reminds us what a real life of faith looks like. See, Paul says this in, in, um, in verse 19. He says, he did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver. However, if you read much about Abraham's life, his life would suggest that he did waver. He told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. He told Pharaoh, he, the, the, the king essentially of Egypt, that Sarah, his wife, was just his sister to avoid, like, possible punishment. And so Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife. Like, that's weird. I don't know how long that went on, but I wouldn't have enjoyed that particularly. He gets his servant Hagar pregnant in order to try and make this promise come come to fruition on his own, right? Instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of really trusting in the Lord, what does he do? He, He tries to take matters into his own hands. Foolish. And yet what? God still gives Isaac. See, he didn't always live out his faith. His obedience was not perfect. His trust fluctuated, but his faith was never extinguished. He hung on to God's promises, even in his own flaws and failings. So here's the thing. When, uh, when maybe we feel like, uh, maybe we feel like we're sinful or unrighteous, maybe we feel like we failed God, that should drive us to him, not away from him. Because God has promised to save us. Because God has promised to give us righteousness, to give us justification in and through the work of Jesus. And so we can go to God and say, you promised. And I believe that Jesus satisfied that promise. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin. And I'm going to live in light of that. That's where my hope is. That's where my trust is. That's my only option. I have one destination apart from Jesus. That is eternal separation from God the Father. Romans 4, 23 through 25 says this. 
But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, talking about Abraham, but for ours also, that's you and me. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here's the thing. A lot of times we like to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and say that there's a great divide in terms, of, in terms of how people were saved in the Old Testament. And what Paul is saying is that that's not the case. You believe in God. You put your trust in God. That's what Abraham did, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We do the same thing today. We place our, so Abraham looked forward to the promise that God would save. We look backward, and we see that Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. And we place our trust and we place our hope in that truth, in that reality. It's always been the same. God has always been consistent in what he's required, what he's asked of his people. And here's the thing. It's nothing. It's everything that is his. It is his gift that he has chosen to give, to bestow. And so our righteousness is purchased and provided by the blood of Jesus. He is the propitiation, the payment for the penalty of sin. And he was delivered up for us to be justified for, so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinner, he sees righteous. And we lay hold of this righteousness through faith. We stop trusting ourselves, our feelings, our emotions, popular opinion, and we start trusting in God and we start trusting in what he says is true. And all of it is a gift. Ephesians chapter 2 makes that pretty clear, that it's by grace, through faith that you've been saved, and that that's a gift. And so it's not his grace and your faith. It's his grace, his faith that he's given to you to be placed in the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. That's the truth. And that's how we lay hold of it. That's how we begin. That's the first response of how we begin to live life um, as, as God would have us to live it. We don't work for a salvation. We work from it. We work from the power of God's righteousness. We work from the power of his salvation. We work from his goodness and graciousness revealed in Christ Jesus. 